with that, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings 6. Um, I had something else prepared. Then about a week ago, I uh, was getting ready for bed and um, was reading just a random Gospel Coalition uh, article. And it had to do with this passage. And uh, for some reason, um, I, I went to my wife and I said, I cannot go to bed until I figure out this passage. And as so often happens with the Bible, those passages you skip over are the ones that when you really dive into it is a real genuine blessing. Uh, so Second Kings chapter 6, we just want to read the first seven verses. Uh, the writer of two kings writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. He answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and they came to the Jordan. They cut down trees. But as one of them was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. He cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and it took. Let's go quickly to the Lord in prayer. Our, our Father, we, we always ask, or I always ask, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our mouth, our ears, our hands, our feet, that our entire being is transformed as we are transfixed upon your Son. Lord, this is your work. It is your word. It is your work. It is your spirit. Let them move among us. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you, okay? Economic strength, corrupt leadership, international upheaval, spiritual malaise, moral decay, and idolatry all around. That, of course, isn't just 21st century America. It is also the world in which Elisha ministers in. King Jerem, who is on the throne of Israel, is the son of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And of course, they were among the worst of the kings and queens that Israel had ever had. In fact, the story of Jerem, the way he's described by the writer of 2 Kings is that, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, he's not that bad, but he certainly tried to be as bad as his parents, right? There, there is just nothing good about this king. However, though the nation is falling apart spiritually and morally and, and everything else, that doesn't mean God had abandoned his people. Most notable in this is that God sent to Israel a number of prophets to, to draw them back to a proper worship of Yahweh. Two most notable ones are Elijah the Tishbite and his young Padawan for uh, the Star Wars fans here, and that is Elisha. It's easy to get those two uh, confused, but we will do the best that we can. And the story of Elisha begins when Elijah uh, is, is taken up into heaven, and he gets a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So with the story of Elijah, we get seven major uh, miracles. With, the, with Elisha, we get 14. Of course, the number of seven and 14 are significant in uh, Jewish theology. And the story of Elisha is largely dominated by his miracles. Can, can I get you caught up on the first 10 miracles? This is the 11th. Let, let me tell you what the 10 miracles before this are. 
It starts in 2 Kings 2. Elisha divides the waters of the Jordan and he, he crosses on dry land. That, of course, mirrors Joshua in generations prior crossing the Jordan River on dry land. And, of course, Moses and the Red Sea. Later in that chapter, he heals the water near Jericho to help the allies of Israel fight off the, the Moabites. At the end of the chapter, he, he calls out two she-bears. You know the rest of the story, right? It's the best part of the Bible, right? You know, he's, he, it's, it, we all know it's not the charming bears, but nevertheless, these, these giant bears come out and just maul a bunch of teenagers. And let's be honest, if you had the power to do that with teenagers to spend too much time on TikTok, you would use that power. Let's just be honest with that, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> In chapter three, he fills the valley with water, uh, in, in, in uh, anticipation of, of a battle. In chapter four, Elisha helps an impoverished woman pay her debts through by the selling of oils. He, he multiplies uh, her, her oil there. He then raises the Shumanite, the widow, her son who has died, raises him back from the dead. Only Elijah and Elisha did anything like that in the Old Testament. Also in chapter four, he purifies poison stew. You know the story, there's, there's poison in the pots. That's similar as, of course, Moses did something like that in the wilderness. In chapter 4, tell me this story sounds familiar. Elisha feeds a multitude of men with bread and grain. That, of course, will be mirrored by Christ himself. Elisha feeds 100 men. Jesus will feed over 5,000. In chapter 5, he cleanses Naaman of leprosy. And then he takes the leprosy and he puts it on a man by the name of Gehazi. I mean, if the first wasn't cool enough, right? the second was, was quite, quite impressive. Then we come to chapter 6 and he makes an axe head float. That last one's not as impressive as all the other ones, is it? I mean, think about it. If, if you could call out she-bears right now, you would, right? And that would make the local paper. If you could raise the dead... If you could cleanse someone of leprosy, if you can cause leprosy upon, upon someone else, miracles of construction, miracles of destruction, these are all impressive. And then we come to this passage and he found something at the bottom of the river. I mean, it's not an impressive story at all. Yet I think that's precisely the point of the story. Let's start with the friends in verses 1 to 4. We, we meet here in verse 1, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha. We won't spend as much time on this as we could. The sons of the prophets, for the sake of brevity, are essentially seminary students. They, they, they are under the leadership of Elisha. Elijah was the previous seminary president, if you will. And then uh, when Elisha uh, uh, watched him being taken up into heaven, he now assumes the presidency of the Gilgal Baptist Theological Seminary of the Prophets, right? And that, that, so, so the sons of the prophets, they, they, they come and there's an immediate need you see laid out there in verse 1. See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Basically, what you have here is... These seminary students uh, have outgrown the facilities that is available to them. They need larger dorm rooms. They, they need a larger chapel. They need more classrooms. What, where they have been studying is, is too small. They need larger facilities. This, of course, in an American mindset is a good thing. It implies growth. And with growth comes influence, right? I mean, after all, in, in a nation that is spiritually decaying, morally corrupt, it is good to hear that the local Baptist uh, seminary for the prophets are, are growing by leaps and bounds. So much so, they, 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 they've had to expand um, their property. 
And perhaps the the writer wants us to to believe that despite that cultural malaise, there is an increase in the interest in Yahweh. And so they come up with this plan. It's there in verse 2. Let us go to the Jordan. Each of us there get a log. And let's make a place for us to, to dwell there. So, so it's a pretty straightforward plan, right? They say, okay, we need a new building. Let's go down to the Jordan River and cut down trees and fashion, construct for ourselves a new seminary. Right? And it's pretty, pretty straightforward. But what it indicates is that these men are humble, right? That they they are willing to go and serve and to meet a need that is necessary. It also demonstrates that they are impoverished. After all, notice that they themselves must have to go and cut down the trees and construct the seminary. They can't hire out the labor to do that. And and again, put put this in the right context that, that they are doing this in an economic boom in Israel. In fact, if you were to go to the palace, not far from, from where they are here, they, you would find a palace made of our ivory and expensive stones and gems. And, and, and both Ahab and his son loved to spend money. After all, they had the money to spend. The economy was up, revenue was up, and, and it was good times rock and roll, except for these guys. They are impoverished. They were poor seminary students. Not to mention they are industrious. Just a little footnote here. Just, just a reminder, if you, if you cannot believe that uh, ministers work on more than one day a week, you need to return to the sons of prophets, right? They, they are industrious. They are working here. But nevertheless, they, they, they begin this process and they want Elisha there um, with them. So they'll say in verse 3, be pleased to go with your servants. That is, will you join us in this adventure? And he, of course, agrees to, to do it, right? He's given his approval to build the seminary, and now he's invited to join them. And so the students will be under his watchful eye. In many ways, he is a, a mentor, a, 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 a rabbi to them, and, and they are his disciples. And they know that God's spirit is upon him, and uh, they want him to be with them. And that moves to the frustration in verse 5. Elisha arrives at the construction site, and what a sight that must be for him. What he witnesses is a swarm of busy bees chopping down wood and constructing a new seminary. It had to have been exciting for him. After all, remember who, who his example was, who, who he followed. It was Elijah. And you remember what Elijah's great climatic point was? It was when he goes to the top of the mountain and he floods his, his uh, uh, sacrifice and he calls down fire from heaven. That's a cool trick, right? And, and there he demonstrates that, that the gods of Baal and Ashtoreth aren't real gods, that they are following after false gods. So he has them executed right there in front of everyone. I mean, that's a man right there, right? They didn't teach us how to do that in seminary. <laughs> I must have taken that elective, right? That's my one regret. But then do you, know, you remember what happened after that? He had to flee for his life, and he sunk into a time of deep depression, sort of depression where he asked God to take his life. And the reason he did that was because he, he remember he confessed? I am all alone. I am all that's left There's no one else. When I die, there is no one else to carry on this message. The entire nation has gone away to false prophets and idolatry. And yet the next generation, what does Elisha witness? A booming seminary that they they keep outgrowing its facilities. I mean, just put yourself in Elisha's shoes. 
If Elijah could have been here, you can imagine him saying, he wouldn't believe it. While he is witnessing these things, one of the students was chopping away at a tree and an accident happened. In one fell swoop, the head of the axe falls off the handle and drops right into the river. And remember, we are in the iron age of humanity. And the axe would have been made of iron. In fact, in fact, the Hebrew word for axe head is the word iron, right? So, so it's, it's a block of iron on top of a handle, and he's swinging it. It's, it's an axe. So, so translating an axe is fine. But the text wants to emphasize this is iron. And in case uh, you, 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 you're, you're city folk, you don't know this, iron sinks. Like, like a cell phone sinks, right? Is, 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 that a, is that a better comparison, right? You know? Amen, like, like your wedding ring will sink when you take it off the shave, right? Anyone here lose your wedding ring within like the first six weeks of, of, your, of your marriage? Uh, my dad did, right? And I have a terrible habit. I do not, I didn't grow up with the ring, don't, don't really care the, the wear it, don't tell my wife I said that. And uh, so I will take it off if, if, I'm, if I'm at the desk. And people say all the time, you're gonna lose that, you're gonna lose it, right? And it, it, it sinks, it, it goes right down the sink and it's gone. Cars sink, right? I mean, you, you, you lose this and, and it's going to sink. But we need to note a couple things about this, this ax. First of all, iron is a rare commodity. Look, look if, if we need a new ax here, we can go to the hardware store, the Walmart, or, or if, if you really don't like shopping, because then your wife will ins- insist on going with you, you're just going to order it on Amazon, right? It'll be here in a day or two. The job can wait. You know, <laughs> I'll use a butter knife if I have to. I just don't want to go shopping with the missus. But, but, but you, you, they're, they're relatively easy to come across, right? Fairly cheap. You, 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 you can get them really easily. That is not the case in ancient Israel. In fact, according to 1 Samuel 13, the Israelites needed to fashion some weapons and tools out of iron. The problem is they, they didn't really know how to. So they had to go north to their neighbors of Philistia who had a type of monopoly. They had to have the feeling teach him how to, how to take iron and fashion weapons and tools out of it, right? They had to be taught that because it's just not laying around everywhere. If you know anything about economics, it is that, that if, if there is a shortage of supply, the cost goes through the roof, right? And so, so here he has an iron ax. He knows it's expensive. And so this is a rare commodity. And remember, these guys are poor, which means, as the text tells us, he has to borrow the axe. In fact, the word for borrowed in the ESV is the Hebrew word for ask. He had to ask for the axe. Or for some of y'all from rural communities, he had to ask for the axe, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> One commentator compared losing this axe head to, to the bottom of the river to wrecking a borrowed car. When we moved to Breckenridge County, my wife and I, um, we, we were still driving our cars from high school, which meant we weren't going to be driving them for much longer, right? But, but we were going to drive them until they died, and they died both within like a month of each other. And we couldn't really afford to, to, to just go out and buy another car, so we were really stuck. What are we going to do? I was still a seminary student. We still had ministry responsibilities, not to mention we, we had a child and, and, and everything that goes on with that. And, um, um, and for some reason, my wife kept on wanting to go see her, see her parents, and so we had to have a car. And so we just didn't know what to do. Well, one of our uh, members of the church I served at was, was a really sweet elderly lady, and she had a car. She had no business driving. She wasn't allowed to drive. Her family wouldn't let her, but she wanted the security of having a car out in the driveway anyways. 
But she found out that both of our cars had, had died roughly the same time. She said, look, this car needs to be driven. Why don't you, until you figure out a more permanent solution, uh, borrow this car? That was very nice of her. And but however, every time I was driving to Louisville to go to the seminary, I, I, would, I would say to God, God, okay, do not let me wreck this thing. If I do, let it be that I die with it, right? You know, I don't want to mess with that, okay? That is a disaster, right? You do not want to make that phone call at all. The first wreck I ever had was I wrecked my dad's car. Okay? And I didn't wreck it. It was, it was gone. Okay? We had a funeral for it and everything. It, it was raptured away. Okay? I mean, I totaled this thing. And I remember as I lost control of the car on those wet roads in, out, out in the rural part of Grand County, I, I, thought, I thought, I'm going to die. Right? And then, and then afterwards, you, know, you do this thing. Right? What's broken? What's bleeding? Anything? How am I still alive? And I remember thinking, this is dad's car. I'm going to die when dad finds out. Right? It's the same thing happened in here. To lose this is to lose something he cannot afford to replace. And the law says exactly what will be expected of him. In order to replace this expensive item, he will be expected to voluntarily enter into indentured servanthood. He will essentially have to become a slave. So as he watches that iron sink quickly into the river, he sees his future in ministry going with it. He sees his future of freedom going with it. Well, finally, there is the fortune in verses 6 to 7. In his panic, the student turns to Elisha, and verse 7, uh, rather the rest of verse 6, second part of verse 6, tells us, what Elisha's plan is. The man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron floats. Can you imagine watching this? All right, son, tell me, where, where did the iron sink? Right there, okay. I'll look, a stick on the ground. I'll fix this, right? <laughs> I mean, the stick won't pick up the iron. <laughs> right, that's his plan. It's not more complicated than that. Break off the stick, toss it into the river. That's it. No magical ritual. He doesn't gather a large crowd, grabs a stick, throws it in. And by George, it floats. Now, can I just add a, just, just a little footnote here? The ancient Near Eastern world was well aware that this defies the laws of nature. This is a real frustration I have when people read the Bible. The, the word miracle existed in the ancient world and it meant defying the laws of nature. Much like none of us can order around she bears to maul the local youth. Much like you can't just raise the dead by touching them or laying on top of them. Much like you can't make uh, the, the Kentucky River just dry up and, and, and walk across it. Those defy the laws of nature. So too, the, the writer here knows that iron floats. Thus, when it sinks, and so when it floats, that is a violation of the laws of nature, which, which makes it, by definition, a miracle. And so the simple act of tossing the, the stick into the river causes the axe to float. Here, I love how the King James describes it. In 2 Kings 6, 6, the King James says, And the man of God said, Where fell it? He showed him the place. He cut down a stick. And cast it in thither. And then it adds, and the iron 
did swim. I love that. So the man, the student sees the swimming axe. He reaches out, takes it, and presumably goes back to working on the new seminary. That's the end of the story. Now, if you all just bow your head, we'll go home. If you need any more dessert, grab it, right? What does this have to do with the price of bread in China? I don't know much about China, but, but I do think there's a lot here that has to do with us. When you consider the numerous miracles of the Bible, this one might be at the top of the least impressive of the miracles. No one is sick. No one is dead. No one is at war. No one is leprous. No one's drowning. No one is suffering. No one is demonized. No one's starving. A guy lost his tool. And Elisha went and got it for him. But I do think there's some things we, we need to grasp from the story. Can I just give you three things and then we'll go back and get some more macaroni and cheese, which was excellent, by the way. I think y'all thought the same things is all gone. Number one, the ordinary is extraordinary. You read commentaries on this passage. Listen to sermons on this passage and you'll notice a temptation to do one of two things and they all have the same root. The root problem is it's such a boring story, we need to liven it up, right? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, if, if you, you and your spouse did something, it's a typical day, and your kids retell something boring that happened that day, it's added a lot more flair to it, right? They're using a lot more uh, uh, hand gestures. They add a few little details and, and whatnot. And so that's what a lot of people do here, right? It's, it's not a very good story. When you're just, if, if you were around your buddies and you told this story, <laughs> it just started to float. And that's the end of the story, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's not a good story. So what you'll get a lot of people do is, one, they try to allegorize it. And one of the ways they allegorize it is they say, look, this is a parable, if you will. And, and, and it's about the Exodus. So it looks back at the Exodus. So you have an a, a, a Israelite in the wilderness uh, and, and, and there's water involved with sinking and coming out of the water. And, and there's a tyrant, there's a Pharaoh type of person. So, 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 so it's like the Exodus all over again. And so what we're looking for is a new Exodus. And so we can look for not just Moses in the past. We look at the Jonah in the future. After all, Jonah went into the river. Jonah came out of the river. And, and and, and, and revival sprang out of that. So see, it's all about a new exodus. Elisha's bringing on a new exodus. And okay, but there's a better way to tell that story, I would think. And if that doesn't work, you can moralize the story. And so what you'll find is sermon titles and telling you how in this story, you'll learn how to sharpen your edge. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like something that, that may, you know, fix my marriage. I don't know, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a, uh, the, the book of the month on, on Oprah.com or something like that. Or, or so, so if you're not learning how to sharpen your edge, you'll learn just how to stay sharp, right? Again, I don't know what that means, but it sounds really good, right? I, I want to learn how to sharpen my edge. How not to lose your edge, some will even say. Some will say it's a story about how you should take care of your tools. I mean, I, I don't know. You, you can moralize this. Uh, and you guys think I'm joking. That, that, that's, a, that's a real entire sermon on taking care of your tools. And I'm sure that was a parable for taking care of your marriage or something like that. I don't know. And so the problem is what, when we allegorize or we moralize, we're trying to turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. But Christianity shows us 
that the ordinary is extraordinary. I've I've done a lot of funerals in in my life. I've I've buried a lot of people. And one of the things I've found is that if you're going to put anything on your tombstone, it's going to be missing a lot of biographical information. It's not going to mention what you achieved in high school. It's not going to achieve or is is not going to mention anything you may have achieved in in college, what your career path was or how successful you you were, how much money you left behind for your kids and an inheritance. It doesn't mention any of that. If it mentions anything, chances are it's going to say loving husband and father. A whole man's life summarized. Loving husband and father. See, the temptation is, is for us right now is to say, well, that's just ordinary life. But Christians have always thought those ordinary things are extraordinary things. It's the American bravado that, that says that, that only the extraordinary matters in the kingdom of God. A large following, published books, wealthy friends, friends in high places. But the Bible cares about the ordinary. Think about it. Jesus changed the world with 12 fishermen and not an academic among them. And although we may not see it, God is glorified in the daily grind of faithful Christianity. Luther was once asked to comment about a father changing his, his diapers, or not his diapers, that's, that came later, but, but, but changing a, a baby's diapers, right? And, and, and people were mocking that, right? Men shouldn't do something like that. And Luther rightly corrected them and said that, that, that what the man is doing in changing his child's diapers is of immense importance in the kingdom of God. He is exercising the, the love of a father, the care of a husband. And after all, isn't, hasn't God the Father had to clean up some of our messes over the time? Don't mock someone who, do, who does that, who serves his family and loves his kids and takes care of them. Don't mock a man like that. That little ordinary task we may otherwise pass on to our wives is still an extraordinary thing in the eyes of God. But here's the thing about this man. He has one job. And that is to chop wood. But in chopping wood, he is in as much the will of God as Elisha is when he confronts tyrants. In swinging an axe borrowed from a wealthy friend, God is as pleased with him as he is when a prophet raises the dead. Because the ordinary is Extraordinary. I would encourage you this evening, do not mitigate ordinary faithfulness. Husbands, love your wives in an understanding way as Christ has loved you. Fathers, raise your children to fear and to love the Lord. Believers, read your Bible regularly. Disciples, pray and then pray some more. Pastors, Lead your church to pursue Christ in all of his glory. Ordinary things. Extraordinary things. But not only that, this text shows us that desperation is not failure. Put yourself in the student's shoes. The panic in his voice is, is apparent, isn't it? I mean, right away, he, he's swinging the axe and it just swings off there in one fell swoop and he, he watches go down and he says, Master, problem, right? right? Like, hit, 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 hit the uh, staples easy button, do something here. We got a problem, we got to solve it. 
And you can hear it in his voice, this, this panic that is there. He helplessly watches it sink into the bottom of the river, and he knows he is doomed. Now, we can only speculate the whole story, of course. Maybe he was negligent. After all, we've all had axes that that get loose or hammers that get loose. And and chances are, it didn't just happen all of a sudden. There's been signs of this, I'm I'm sure, right? And he was negligent and it just fell off, right? Maybe he's just inexperienced. Perhaps he's just the sort of guy who who just wanted to help. All all the boys are going out and cut some tree. Uh, I need to get some fresh air. I'm going to go cut some tree. So he borrows his friend's axe and he just goes to, to work. Now, What he does here does seem a bit foolish, right? Surely someone with a little bit of swinging experience knows that that this this could happen. But carelessness is common with the inexperienced, right? For example, the great theologian Chase Robertson from Duck Dynasty. One of my favorite lines from that show. I just rewatched it again to the glory of God. He said this, if you don't know what you're doing, you might as well do it quickly. That is... That is true, because let me give you some advice. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get the same result no matter how much time, how many videos you watch YouTube, right? You might as well just, just go all out, right? You, someone's going to have to come back. You're going to have to pay them to fix what, what it is that you did wrong. So may, maybe the guy is just uh, inexperienced as well. Regardless, this for him is a moment of despair, a moment of struggle, and is a moment of doubts. You can see his mind turning as, it, as he watches it sink. Maybe, maybe I'm not really cut out for this thing. You know, maybe when I go back to First Baptist Church of Gilgal, Israel, that all those women kept telling me when I was a teenager that the Lord has a special plan for me and he's called me in the ministry. And I really believe them, but it's very, very evident to me now that God hasn't called me to this. Everything I touch, it just fails and falls apart. Literally, sometimes. Everyone else here seems to be doing just fine, but not me. I'm I'm a failure. Maybe they would be better off without me. But can I tell you the difference between this man and most of us men here? This man turns immediately to his master. It's right there in the text. Master, it was borrowed. He knew the stories of Elisha. The dead had been raised, the lepers were cleansed, bears would follow every one of his commands. Surely he can handle this. Charles Spurgeon was, of course, a popular preacher in the 19th century England. And he was a popular preacher almost immediately that he he first took a pulpit. And crowds would flock all over the place to hear him preach. And as a result, the church he pastored, even though it was quite large, couldn't hold everybody. And so early on in his ministry, they decided they would do like a weekend series of sermons. And it would be in a large music hall in London. And that way more people could come hear their pastor preach. And on the first night, the place is just packed. People coming from all over the city to hear him. And someone foolishly, yells fire. As a result, there, there is a stampede, people trying to find the exit. Many were injured and two were trampled to death. This wrecked Spurgeon. The newspapers and the media at the time blamed him and he took it very personally. He spent weeks in his bed suffering through 
bouts of depression and melancholy. And to be honest, throughout the rest of his life, he, he, he would keep coming back to, to those feelings of despair as a result of that night. But there was one passage that kept coming to his mind. One passage that encouraged him. And the iron did swim. In the sword and trowel, he wrote, Beloved reader, what is your desperate case? What heavy matter do you have in mind? Bring it here. The God of the prophets lives, and he lives to help his saints. Believe in the Lord of hosts. Approach him pleading the name of Jesus, and the iron shall swim. You too shall see the finger of God working marvels for his people. According to your faith shall it be unto you, and yet again the iron shall swim. I think one of the things that has drawn me to this text, of all the texts in the Bible, is this right here. Chances are your local church is struggling as much as mine in light of coronavirus. In fact, we had a good uh, number of people turn out yesterday, which would have been a low crowd two years ago. And I'm guilty of allowing the same despairs and doubts of this unnamed seminary student to creep into my own heart. The rapid onslaught of spiritual despondency brought about by COVID-19 is very real. Now, to be clear, I don't think COVID is the cause of the despondency. It simply removed the blindfold that we all knew was already there. But for many of us, we thought that so long as the budget was met and there were, there were people in the pews, we could pretend like we were spiritually ready for something like this. But now the blindfolds are off. Depression is up among ministers. Frustration has skyrocketed among members. And the uncertainty of the future is very real right now. But the iron wheel floats. If we turn to our master. As the 18th century was closing and opening in the new 19th century, the population of Kentucky was skyrocketing. It founded in 70, or made a state in 1792. The, the, the population was already grown, but now it just, it just really just took off. As people found cheap land that they could, they could buy and they could build a home with, with little government involvement. But the problem is people came to Kentucky for land, not for religion. And as a result, as the population increased, the churches at best plateaued. And thus the share of population who confessed Christ kept dropping as the population increased. And so at, at, as, as 1799 turned into 1800 and you start reading the pioneer preachers, you, you can see this feeling of despondency and depression uh, in their own hearts. For example, David Barrow said, of all the denominations I can remember to have seen in that country, the Kentucky, the deists, the nothingarians, and the anythingarians are the most numerous, right? Today we call them nuns. John Taylor said many feared, he, he was preaching the uh, funeral of a pastor, many feared they should never again hear the joyful tidings of the conversion of sinners or see more people baptized. Indeed, myself was very much overwhelmed with these kind of feelings. In his history of Kentucky Baptist, Spencer notes that at the beginning of the year 1800 was the darkest period that has ever occurred in religious history of the Mississippi Valley. The gloom had been thickening year after year until the land was now enveloped in spiritual darkness. 
In the year 1800, when the Elkhorn Baptist Association gathered together for their annual meeting, the clerk read all the letters that churches sent in. And these letters tell you how many they baptized and who were they discipling. Did they grow in numbers? They decrease in numbers and all that. And he was so distraught from reading all the letters because they all said the same thing. Like, things are getting worse out here. No one is coming to Christ. No one's getting baptized. And we preach and we preach and we preach and it's all on deaf ears. And so he wrote in the official minutes, there was great suppiness right? Which is a fancy way of saying it's doom and gloom in our churches. But little did he know, Augustine Easton, who himself was a pastor in Lexington, little did he know, weeks later, one of those despondent pastors I just read from was invited to preach at a, a group of, of Methodist Baptists who couldn't get along. Who, who would have think that? And, and so he's invited to come preach. He didn't want to go, but he felt obligated to go in a place where there was not a church in the middle of nowhere, and the revival among Baptists began right there. Right there, Gent, Kentucky, and the church planted as a result is still in business. He moved from Gent, he was pastor in Northern Kentucky, he went down central Kentucky to Versailles to the church he used to pastor. More a revival broke out. And all around the, the state, experiences all of a sudden. In fact, in the Elkhorn Association, the number of members within three years tripled, the number of churches doubled. Why? Because the iron did swim. In every miracle of the Bible, there is a desperate soul. Desperation does not mean failure, it means it is time to turn to our Master. Can I just quickly, you're probably hungry again, so let me, let me get through this last point. Christ is a sweet redeemer. We don't have time to get into all the details, but, but many of Elisha's miracles overlap, right? We've already seen how the crossing of the Jordan mirrors previous miracles, right? The feeding of the multitude will mirror a later miracle that Jesus will perform. And, 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 and the uh, purifying the water matches some of the things that the Moses did. And the raising of the widow's uh, son uh, mirrors some of the things that Elijah did and the Christ will do later, right? I mean, we, we see the overlap there. But even among Elisha's own miracles, there, there is overlap. For example, in, 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 in chapter 4, uh, we, we see that um, the story of helping the impoverished woman with her debts mirrors what Elisha is doing here with the seminary students. Right? So, so he helps her, he, he helps uh, multiply the oils and stuff, which mirrors some of what Jesus did in John 2, but, 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 but he, he does that, and as a result, she is freed from debts. Here, in, 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 in making the axe head float, he, he again frees this man of, of certain slavery. One a woman, one a man. Both are, are redeemed by the master from certain slavery and debt. In fact, you can, you can look at the two stories and they borrow language. For example, in 2 Kings 4, it says, uh, so he called to her after he raises her son, Pick up your son. He tells the, uh, the, the seminary student in verse seven, take it up. It's the same language in Hebrew. Clearly, the writer wants us to see a connection among the miracles itself. Now, why, why, does, that, why does that matter? Elisha is acting throughout many of these miracles as a type of kinsman redeemer. He recovers the debts and he sets them free. But I can think of a true and better redeemer, can't you? 
So that's where you are in the story. The desperate soul who sees his future sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. That's you. And the only hope you have is for a redeemer to come whom we call master to rescue us, to redeem us from certain slavery. It is no accident then, then uh, that, that the early church uh, theologian Origen, when he's preaching this passage, he, he sees the reference to wood as the source of the miracle and he makes a beeline to the cross. It's a bit allegorical to me, but I appreciate the sentiment coming from you. You see, the ordinary in Christ is extraordinary. And he shows us that the desperation of the cross is not failure. It's the key to victory. And what a sweet redeemer he still is. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Can I add a line to that song? And the iron did swim. Let's pray.